0: Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben ohara Byrne. Tonight, movie lovers and Indiana Jones fans in particular will have something to celebrate this long weekend. The fifth latest and presumably last installment of the series hits theaters across the country on Friday. It's called Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. And we find out from someone who's seen it if it's a storybook ending for the franchise or what adventure, too many for Indy. Historian and podcast host Craig Baer joins us to talk about this country just ahead of Canada Day and share some trivia. We'll also discuss why so few of us know enough about our past to pass a citizenship test. But first, her straight talk, often about uncomfortable subjects, made her an unlikely but undeniable star. Sue Johansson was long regarded as this country's foremost sexpert, including through her hugely popular TV shows, The Sunday Night Sex Show, and Talk Sex with Sue Johansson. She passed away at the age of 93 this week, and her daughter Jane joins me to talk about her life and her incredible legacy. We begin with the passing of a true Canadian legend, a a one-of-a-kind, really. Her straight talk about often uncomfortable subjects made her an unlikely but undeniable star. Sue Johansson was long regarded as this country's foremost sexpert, including through a hugely popular TV show or TV shows called The Sunday Night Sex Show and Talk Sex with Sue Johansson. She was a former nurse and a longtime sex educator who made it her mission to destigmatize the topic. Uh, she passed away in Toronto today at the age of 93. It all started when she set up a birth control clinic in a Toronto high school all the way back in 1970. And then she started to travel to schools across Ontario to talk to students, frankly, about subjects that just weren't talked about. She started that in 1974 and would continue to do so. Then in the 80s, she took to the airwaves, starting in radio and then, of course, on our TV screens. Her American show was so, so well-regarded, so popular, that at one point she became a hit on the late-night talk show circuit. Here she is with Conan O'Brien.
1: Nice to have you here. It's the hot stuff bag.
2: Oh, okay. <laughs> Just, let's just let's be... not. Let's ramp up to that gradually. All right. Uh, we'll,
3: we'll do, <laughs> the, do f- it gently, Bentley. Uh, okay. okay. Uh,
2: <laughs> we're off and running already. Uh, now, uh, I don't want to waste any time, Sue. A lot of people, uh, like myself, uh, we don't talk about sex often. This is a chance for us to learn.
0: There it is. And, and then of course, the whole segment is hilarious. You get to see them. They're on YouTube. They're fantastic. She was such a natural. She blended sort of really straight talk about subjects that people are really uncomfortable talking about. And at the same time, she injected it with so much humor and it was so disarming that she was one of a kind. A few years ago, she was featured in a documentary called Sex with Sue by filmmaker Lisa Rideout. And Lisa Rideout joins me now, along with Sue Johansson's daughter, Jane Johansson. Thank you both so much for your time. Thanks for having us. Our pleasure. Jane, I'll begin with you and our condolences, of course, because it felt like, you know, I saw the news today. and mm-hmm. I thought, wow, you know, what What an incredible impact that your mom had on so many of, I mean, I'm, I'm a Gen X kid and she kind of stormed into our lives with, with this straight talk uh, that I, 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 funny, you know, I guess we just hadn't heard it before and we didn't know we needed it till we did.
4: Well, I think I love that you use the word storm because I think my mom was a little bit of a a stomper. And she just would, uh, she broke down barriers. She broke, she, you know, busted through doors. And I think she woke up a lot of people and uh, it was perfect timing. It was when, you know, society needed it, schools needed it. Um, and um, she uh, was a pioneer.
0: She was. And it began, I mean, it began modestly and with. With uh, with all good intentions, you know, at this point, nearly 50, well, more than 50 years ago.
4: Oh, my gosh. Is it that? I guess in
0: 1971, I suppose, when, when she first started off sort of, you know, going out to schools and talking to people thinking this needs to be talked about in a way that isn't taboo. And it was ahead of its time in the early 70s, for sure.
4: Yeah, and I think Sue was very clever in using uh, humor and antics and being uh, playful with it to break the ice of the topic. So then she could then become serious and get into the real meat of the matter. And um, she was really smart that way.
0: Yeah, because it's funny, I was just watching um, your mom on Conan O'Brien and it's absolutely hilarious. I mean, she is just so disarming and she's taking near, she has Roy Romano on one side of her and Conan O'Brien, two famous comedians, and she's essentially disarmed them in about 30 seconds. But then she gets into what she wants to talk about and it's a really incredibly powerful way to communicate.
4: Mm-hmm. I think it was also lovely to see that she could just sit in silence and go, hmm, and then snap back to David Letterman and literally, you know, pull pull the rug right out from under his feet, which was so sweet.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lisa, tell me a bit about about uh, how you became involved with with the project and decided you wanted to make it make a documentary about it. To sort of because I think it lives on as a testament uh, to Sue's to Sue's work.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I um I watched the documentary about Dr. Ruth on a plane, and I thought, oh, had anyone made a film about Sue Johansson? And quickly googled her, found her website, sent an email, got kind of an ominous response from. manager Randy Gulliver that said someone's making a film about Sue but maybe they'll contact you and I was like okay probably no (laughs) one's gonna contact me and what happened um, Jane had been filming with her mom for a few years making a documentary and she was looking for a new director at the exact same time so you know I think both Jane and I feel like the universe brought us together at this time and um, jumped in and we made the film together and I, like so many Canadians, grew up watching Sue. So it was such a big honor for me to be involved with this film. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Is it what you expected when you set off to make it? Was Sue who you thought she would be?
1: Sue, um, she was more than who I thought (laughs) she was. Because I grew up with her in the Sunday Night Sex Show. So I didn't know that she had the clinic. I I just didn't know the extent of her teaching in schools or that she had an American show. So I think her reach was much bigger than I originally had thought.
0: Jane, tell me about how your mom approached it because she did become unbelievably popular and and yet never really changed. I mean, the 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 polish of it changed a little bit as she got more and more comfortable with with the big audiences and so on, I think. But but the message was always the same. How is it for her as this sort of ballooned into something much bigger than I than I imagined she ever expected?
4: I didn't think that she set out to do this. I think she set out to have a birth control clinic for teenagers. And then go into schools and teach kids about how to put on a condom and teach them about uh, using words like yes and no and listening and then also bringing humor into the bedroom or wherever you're having sex. Um, And then once uh, I think once rumors started, uh, this was even before social media, Mm -hmm. once rumors started flying around and people started to get a bit of, you know, her hook and they went, oh, you need to have your own. Television show sort of started at Rogers Cable. Yep. And um, and then um Gary Slate from uh Q107, he got her on board to have her own two-hour show on Sunday nights, which was a dead time zone. And it became so popular that it was just it just kind of uh it was almost like this treadmill that she got on. And I don't mean that in a repetitive bad way, but she got on this kind of launch pad that just flew her in the direction of you know uh television and um and then uh, touring around the world and uh i think it just this none of this was planned she just became a celebrity without her even having anything to do with it
0: right i mean she she never i mean i was watching earlier stuff from the phone shows and it was her ability to handle the most sensitive of topics and mm-hmm. get people to talk about the most Private of things, and yet react to each of them in a very similar way. She was very empathetic. I, th- I thought, and that's that's from an outsider. Obviously, you would know better.
4: Well, she was empathetic, but also she was she just listened. And she leaned into the question and she believed people. And if they were pulling, you know, the wool over her eyes or trying to pull the rug out from under her feet, she would never be, um, she was never swayed. She was never thrown and she would just exit a call early if she felt like she was being taken. Um, But she just, she was so confident in her, uh, in her knowledge and in her ability to communicate all of this. And if she didn't know, she would be really candid and honest about it and say, I'm sorry, I don't have the answer to that. And I will look this up. She'd write it down and she would um, repeat the question and answer it the following week. So she was very humble about the, you know, her abilities and her inabilities.
0: In a time of so many people giving bad advice, it's amazing to watch how conscientious she, she was about the power that she had.
4: Yeah, she really was. And, um, and also, um, I love the the what Lisa did in the documentary that she showed what the influence that Sue had on people that are following in her footsteps. So um, Lisa really focused on people who are now sexual educators themselves, and using social media, whether it's through TikTok, or, you know, Instagram, or all those things that I don't know anything about, but she that that now um, that she got the ball rolling and then passed the torch. And, um, and I
0: think that that's been a, a beautiful thing. Your mom w- would have been a fierce tweeter, I think, or a very good one, at least. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wonder, uh, what was it like to be her daughter, though? Because, you know, my mom was, was in, was in journalism. So I used to watch my mom on TV and it, it, it could be a weird experience, depending what there is, what it is they're talking about. But you seem like you're always very comfortable with, with the, with the role that she had and, and, uh, and the persona that she had.
4: Absolutely not. no. I I, I disagree with you in every way.
0: (laughs) I was wondering, I was wondering.
4: No, there's no way I could not listen to my mom talk about sex. I didn't watch her show. I didn't listen to it. I ran from the TV ran from the room when she wanted to talk about it with me. But what was wonderful is that deep down inside, I knew, I knew in my heart of hearts that I could go to her. If I was in trouble, if I needed to understand something if I needed help in any way when it came to sexual health or sexuality, um, my mom was there for me but I also could run if I needed to. And I just needed that freedom to be able to
0: do that. Yes, I could imagine. Um, Lisa, tell me a bit about, about this, this idea that, that she sort of set the template, because I think we often think of Dr. Ruth, but I was always a bunch, you know, I always listen to Sue Johansson because I'm Canadian, but she really did blaze a trail for a lot of the other ones that are out there today doing very similar work and trying to find that same sort of authenticity.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's hard to remember a time before the internet existed. And so Sue was our source of information. And like Jane said, she was sex positive before that was even a term. So she was really approaching sex education from a non judgmental place. And she was focused on pleasure, which was extremely radical at the time. So when we were in school, we were hearing either, you know, sex is for reproduction, or don't do it, which is what I heard going to Catholic school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Sue was talking about sex in a way that nobody else was. And that influenced, you know, millions of people that were watching her. And some of those millions went on, and they became sex educators because of Sue. So she really, yeah, she set this tone for being sex positive, for being non-judgmental. And I think that's how they approach sex education now. And we've featured you know a bunch of them in the film and like jane said as well sue's ability to use comedy um to open the door to talk about sex uh, is something that Uh, sex educators in the film do or we even you know we feature Russell Peters and Margaret Cho who are comedians and they talk about sex on on stage so yeah
0: yeah I I remember so much of of the sex talk back in the 70s and the 80s being quite dour, right it was quite sort of I mean it sort of had that hangover even though our parents were boomers and they had lived through the summer of love and so on it was still a pretty taboo subject and yet Here comes along Sue Johansson, and she completely changes the tone of the conversation. And it was so refreshing uh, at that age to have someone like that around.
4: Mm -hmm. I think uh, my mom could easily just uh, switch, really switch on and engage, answer questions, be personable, be kind, uh, be warm, loving, gracious, grandmother-like person and then she could just turn off and plod along her little way go to the kitchen make sourdough biscuits um get on the phone pour herself a glass of wine put her feet up and read the newspaper so she was not a fancy pants woman um she uh you know she shopped at garage sales for gosh sakes like she was just a normal human being that could um um rose to an occasion of, of, of what her calling was. And I think she just did it so beautifully and I'm just so proud.
0: Yeah. Did, did she feel like it was a job well done? That like did she when, she, when, when, you know, as she looked back at that career, did she put her feet up and thought, yeah, that, that, I'm glad, I, I'm glad it worked out the way it worked out. I
4: think she thought she was still working right to the end. Right. <laughs> so I don't think she, and my mom was never, you know, kind of vainglorious about stuff like that. She was never self uh, gratifying. She never kind of uh, pumped herself up with her, I did that, you know, she just, she enjoyed how people responded to her. So if people congratulated her, she just, oh, she, she, you know, tilt her head, smile, big, give a big grin and then hug them. And so it was more important about how other people felt than that uh, about her being applauded, I think.
0: Yeah. A last word to both of you and just about her legacy, because I think it's a really rich one. And I'm glad we've taken today to, to appreciate just how much she contributed when she did and how much she changed, changed the channel, so to speak.
4: Mm, Yeah. I agree. And I'm really glad that we had this time to be able to share this with you. And I'm sorry that we have to leave you, but we have to move on. I know. On. You're, you're,
0: you're busy today. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Jane and Lisa, thank you so much both for your time today.
4: Our Thanks pleasure. for having us. Thank you. Bye.
0: This is a bit of a two... A, there were two things that went on today that really caught my attention, and they sort of uh, were wrapped up into one subject and one guest. First, this morning, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that race can no longer be considered as a factor in university admissions. It's a landmark ruling. It upends a decades-old U.S. policy on so-called affirmative action, also known as positive discrimination. It was one of the most contentious issues in U.S. education. Now, affirmative action made its way into policy in the 60s. It has been defended... For, for years as a measure to increase diversity. It has many people who support it, obviously, and many people in America who oppose it. And this all came to a head at a conservative-leaning Supreme Court, of course, these days. And it was struck down by six of the nine justices uh, who said that affirmative action in college admissions forcing institutions of higher education to look for new ways now to achieve diverse student bodies.
3: In a 6-3 to opinion, the U.S. Supreme Court said admissions programs at Harvard and the University of North Carolina employ race in a negative manner, involve racial stereotyping, and lack meaningful endpoints. The decision said the court has never permitted admissions programs to work in that way. Students for Fair Admissions, which brought the case, called the opinion the beginning of the restoration of the colorblind legal covenant that binds the nation. In dissent, Justice Sotomayor said the decision rolls back decades of momentous progress
0: and entrenches racial inequality in education. Aaron Katursky, ABC News, New York. So there you have sort of the synopsis of it. Uh, Joe Biden, the U.S. president, strongly disagreed with the much anticipated decision and said the country would need to find a new path forward that is consistent with the law. And then a little later in the day, back here at home, also an incident involving a university. Uh, Waterloo Regional Police say that a triple stabbing during a gender studies class at the University of Waterloo is believed to have been a hate-motivated attack on the LGBTQ community. The victims were taken to hospital with serious but non-life-threatening injuries. Waterloo Police Chief Mark Crowell says the suspect specifically targeted a gender studies class where around 40 students were present. A former student has been charged in the attack on a teacher and two students.
3: Today we are announcing that we have arrested Giovanni Villalba Eilmann, a 24 year old male who was an international student at the University of Waterloo who recently graduated. Uh, We're being careful um, but also quite direct and we believe this was a targeted uh, specific attack related to gender expression and gender identity and so uh, in in absolutely uh, we're you know for the 2SLGBTQ plus community uh, we believe was targeted sort of broadly and at large here. Uh, We don't believe that the individuals themselves were targeted for that purpose but we believe that the the class uh, subject uh, was of interest to the suspect
0: That is uh, Waterloo Police Chief Mark Crowell there describing this incident uh, that happened, this attack that happened in a philosophy class, a gender studies class at the University of Waterloo yesterday and what could have motivated it. The reason I wrap these two things together is because I I had arranged an interview with my next guest earlier in the day on the Supreme Court. But when this came out, it made so much sense to talk about this as well, because she is, in fact, a professor uh, in the School of Gender, Sexuality and Women's Studies at York University. Her name is Anaksha Anaksha Dua. Uh, She's also the co-author of a book called The Equity Myth, uh which has been been i think it was published about six or seven years ago, so she knows a whole lot about both these topics, so I thought we could tackle both of them together and and actually do what joins me now. Thank you so much
5: you're welcome uh you know thank you for inviting me here I'm really you know it's an important topic, and I'm really excited to be able to talk about it.
0: Indeed, I mean, I think we, we, just to begin because of, of what you study and where you study and where and you know you're in Ontario, you study in 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 the Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies Department as well, or the School of. Just your reaction to what happened in Waterloo because it feels like uh, this this is an alarm, this is a this is a red flag that went off uh, yesterday in, in at a, at a, one of your sister universities.
5: You're completely correct on this, and in fact, it's related to the topic that you wanted to ask me about. You know, the Supreme. Supreme Court decision on using uh, race-based emissions. Um, you know, the, the hostility towards uh, marginalized groups and those who are working on topics of marginalized groups like gender equity, like gender diversity, like racism, uh, homophobia, ableism, the, the hostility has gone up and continues to go up. Uh, you know, the issue first really kind of in Canada uh, exploded with the issue uh, of using pronouns at Wilfrid Laurier University.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: Uh, and uh, But we've had, a, you know, we have had attacks and we have had violence and uh, schools of gender, women and sexuality studies are particularly uh, identified as well as uh, places that do work on anti-racism. And so, um, and it tells us, you know, it tells us both the importance of the work that we're doing, but it also tells us about the growth of the alt right and the way in which there is increasing rhetoric around uh, around these questions. And I use the word rhetoric very consciously Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of false information. Right. And, you know, and false information about gender diversity, false information, information. information about anti-racism um uh and there's a there's been a growth of hostility we all know that we see it
0: you're noticing it right i, I mean that that would i guess that was the question when something like this happens you ask people who are in the field already whether they've noticed that things have become more ominous we see
5: we you know yes we have noticed and i think you know and i think it's very noticeable it's not just attack on you know, here an attack on a uh, gender studies department of faculty is really significant.
0: How do you dial it down? I mean, that, I think therein lies the issue, right? I mean, in this this situation, I guess we'll let the police figure out exactly what went wrong. But they were unequivocal about the fact that this was hate based. Um, you know, the person who carried out is from is allegedly from Ecuador. That who allegedly carried out is from Ecuador uh, himself. But what what I guess what you look at now is. And this happened, I remember distinctly when I was working in the UK, when the MP Joe Cox was, was was killed, right? People said, wait a second, we saw the warning signs coming here and we didn't do enough to try to dial it down. How do you think we dial it down so that we can we can try to at least mitigate some of these risks to people doing the work that you are doing?
5: You know, I wish I could answer that question. I think about it every day. Um... Uh, it's a really difficult question. I mean, some of the, some of the solutions that have been posed, I think are important. Uh, you know, I think having, uh, having, uh, uh, you know, having, uh, uh, trying to prevent false information being disseminated on the internet is really important. Um, uh, but again, you know, is there a will to do that? You know, that that's a difficult thing. Uh, I think I, you know, I I don't I can't give you an easy solution. No, I wish there,
0: there is isn't one, here. right? There is, and maybe
5: one, we should yeah. have a podcast on this by bringing <laughs> some other people into the dialogue. I I personally, you know, I'm at a place where I think what we really need to do on a personal level is have dialogues with people who are uh, believing in the alt right uh, rhetoric. Um, we all know these people. They're our neighbors. They're our friends' friends. They may be our friends. Uh, people who 10 years ago didn't feel this way are now feeling this way. And when it's people we know, you know, we have opportunities to have dialogues. We have opportunity to say, like, think twice about what you're saying. You know, from what I know, uh, there this is not the way these things work. Uh, I'll give you an example of a dialogue I just had with a young man who Uh, had heard from friends and was worried about uh, the ways he felt that uh, he felt that young kids were encouraged to explore trans uh, uh, being trans. And Mm -hmm. the example he gave was that there's posters now in schools. And he said, you know, this is problematic. It's one thing to give rights, but we're encouraging this. And people at that, you know, at young age may not know, and they might see this and misunderstand.
0: Yeah, a, a valid, I suppose a valid concern if you're looking at it from from, from one direction, right? I mean, it, it, these are the things that should be addressed, these, these sorts of concerns, but addressed in, a, in and, an intelligent way, right?
5: Exactly. And he's coming at it from a really human position. He's, mm-hmm. he's you know, he's coming at it saying, okay, I'm, you know, I... I want to make sure that the world is fair. But when I gave them the statistics and said, you know, the reason we do this is because we know that when kids, uh, you know, may not know that they're trans, they may not have language for it. They may feel a hostility towards expressing those feelings. And we know the rates of suicide for, for kids who are trans are four times and please check my number before you post this, right? Uh, I've always bad when I say, uh, yeah, oh, know, just, I mean, they, you I, I, just yeah,
0: say that they're, they, we know they're higher, right? We know they're higher,
5: far higher. Yeah. And so if we can put a poster out, which allows somebody to think through and seek information, perhaps we can, you know, save lives. And when I explained that to this young man, he understood, he said, Oh, okay, I understood. But I had read something different.
0: And actually, Dua is with us. She is a professor in the School of Gender, Sexuality and Women's Studies at York University, one of the co-authors of a book called The Equity Myth. Uh, We've been talking about a a violent incident uh, in a class devoted to gender studies at the University of Waterloo uh, and, and just what the rhetoric was like, how it's heated up and, and how perhaps these you know acts of violence, we don't know exactly what happened here, uh, but clearly police are calling it a hate crime and how these acts of violence in some ways are being fueled by some of this very angry rhetoric that's out there. Uh, and actually, the reason I called you first was, was I was really curious about your take on this decision that essentially strikes down uh, considerations of race and university admissions in the U.S. And, uh, you know, we're on the other side of the border, but this is a big deal.
5: It is a big deal. It's a big deal for the U.S. Um, it's, you know, it certainly is, uh, is uh, significant. Uh, it's a change in how they are going to be able to address equity, diversity, inclusion. Um, I think to understand this decision is very complicated.
0: When you look at, I mean, understanding the, the basis of the case, I mean, clearly what they've said is that it, it actually goes against the Civil Rights Act, which is an interesting way. I mean, it was used; there was a reason it was targeted the way it was. What do you think the impact will be? Because there's been two sides of this today. There, are, those are saying it's a; those are saying, so it's a victory for 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 equality, or you know, color has been the word that's been thrown out there today. And on the other side, there's there's you know this this commitment by some to say, listen, we're going to keep pushing for more equity in schools. We're just going to have to find a different way to do it.
5: And I think that will be definitely what is taking place. And the conversations began way before the decision was made in this court case of how we how in the U.S. they can push for equity in schools. You know, equity in schools is really crucial uh, because if people don't have access to education, they don't have access to, uh, you know, to income, to employment. And so schools become a really central place for doing equity work because we want to ensure that people have the best chances in their life that they possibly can.
0: What would the impact? I'm curious about that because we often conflate what happens there with what happens here. And of course, Canadian university admissions are quite different in that sense. We don't haven't really had that kind of fight over, over this because it doesn't really, isn't really used. I guess it's not seen in the same way.
5: Exactly. And so, I mean, I guess there's two questions, the political impact in the U S and the one in Canada um, you know, in the U.S., we have to see this as a restructuring of the Supreme Court. Yes. The decision was divided. You know, it was divided between the liberals in the Supreme Court and the Republicans. and the conservative judges, yeah. And there's been a concerted effort to change the composition of the Supreme Court in the last 10 years uh, so that decisions like this can be made. So there's a political component to this decision. It's not a surprising one. It's been in the works. People have been working for this, uh, and it's part of a larger project of rest- You know, of the right restructuring the way in which liberalism is- has been in you know, liberal rights uh, and equity has been taking place. Uh, it's tied to abortion rights. It's tied to LGBT rights. So there, you know, we have to look at who made these decisions and the politics that that it's embedded in. Because I right. think that is one of the important consequences of the decision. So for Canada, you're p- completely correct. We don't have race-based emissions at the undergraduate level.
0: But I think a lot of people are going to conflate what happened in the U.S. and look here and not even bother to figure out whether we do it or not, exactly. and we and we don't.
5: Exactly. And then and then for some of those people who, you know, who are feeling threatened by equity, diversity, inclusion, and are uh it's going to then you know feed into the alt-right mm-hmm. and the alt-right's way of being divisive between marginalized groups and, and others. And you know, it's going to feed into just the kind of polarization we're seeing in uh in many societies, United States and Canada. uh, And so I think the main impact that I fear is the social and political impact of this decision, that it legitimizes the critique of equity. Uh, And, you know, and there, I mean, we really have to look at the situation in Canada. You know, we know Black students do not have the same ability to go to university. There was a recent study done in nineteen in twenty twenty one that was very interesting that looked at medical applications um applications to medical schools in two uh in two medical schools and found that even those students who met the grade barriers to be considered to the you know what was the second round of uh kind of uh material so first it's grades and then there are other kind of documents right they met the grade cutoff. But black students were 75 percent less likely to get in admission than a white student. So we know these patterns and inequity exist. They're not about merit. They're about other things. And you know, we, we want to live in a society where everyone has an opportunity to succeed.
0: It is a I, I, both of these are very complicated and very important topics. Thank you so much, and actually do it for your insight on this tonight. I appreciate it.
5: You're welcome. And thank you for asking me.
0: Well, two years ago today, the BC village of Lytton made headlines after temperatures soared to a record shattering 49.6 degrees Celsius, the hottest temperature ever observed. In this country, crushing the previous record of 45 degrees set way back in 1937 in Saskatchewan. I think people had people couldn't believe how hot it was. Now, if you were out west, uh, you knew what was going on because it was the apex of the so-called heat dome that struck the Pacific Nor- Northwest uh, that summer, the unprecedented heat wave uh, that uh, hit uh, Oregon and Washington State, obviously BC and parts of Alberta for eight days, starting on June 25th, 2021. But little did anyone know that on June 29th, as we were talking about these record-setting temperatures in the village of Lytton, where Lytton became a name that people understood, that it was all a prelude to something far more destructive, far more devastating, something that exists, the impact of which exists to this very day. The next afternoon, A wildfire would break out that would spread so quickly through the tinder-dry town that people were forced to flee for their lives. It was a perfect storm of conditions that saw those flames destroy 90% of the town. Insured losses alone were estimated, last I looked, at more than $100 million. Here's how one Kelowna firefighter who was sent to Lytton the next day described what he saw.
1: Basically, when we got here last night, it had started to sort of hold. But uh, from what we understand and what we saw this morning in terms of what the destruction we've seen and the property loss, it seems to have spread really fast.
0: Right. Uh, we know from previous interviews on this show that trying to lift Litton from the ashes has been a painstakingly slow process and one that continues to this day as many other parts of the country right now including residential areas not unlike Lytton say for instance outside of Halifax have also been burnt to the ground during this wildfire season. So for Nor now on the drive to rebuild that village two years later and the surrounding communities I'm joined by Lytton's Mayor Denise O'Connor. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Hi Ben. I was thinking back to two years ago today because it, it was one of those things. I think I was on a tra- – I was in seashell I'd just been on a train. I'd gone right past Lytton, actually, because I'd been in, Ban- in Jasper. And we were all talking about how hot it was. And that's the memory I have of Lytton today. And, of course, everything changes tomorrow, right? hmm Right. That's Right. What was it like? I mean, you were—I'm trying to remember if you were there because I know you, I've, I've followed you on Twitter for quite a while. And I'm trying to remember the, the, what was what happened in that 24 hours for you.
6: So the 24 hours, you know, before the fire, I—I I, lived—I lived in Lytton. I'd lived in Lytton in in my home in the village for uh, over 30 years, um, and yeah, we had this record heat dome and or record heat record heat temperatures. And, you know, we had tourists coming up from Vancouver to experience history, to experience the heat. And we had media in the town. Um, but it was almost a festive, fun kind of a um, an atmosphere, right? Because here we had all this national attention because we were so hot. And then the next day, as you said, everything changed. Um, the next morning after the fire, um, it Not just the temperature dropped a few degrees, but a wind came up, a south wind. And south winds are so common because we're right in the Fraser Canyon, right? So the winds come up the canyon. But a wind had come up that day, which was quite quite unusual. We hadn't seen that for a few days. And it was around 4.30 in the afternoon. And um, personally, I had just come back from the grocery store. And and if anybody knows Lytton, it's not a very big community it's only about seven blocks long the village a portion of it um, and uh, yeah I had just come back from the grocery store and um, somebody had put on Facebook that there was a fire at the south end of town now my home was near the north end of town and I didn't believe it because I just come in a few minutes earlier so yeah I went outside and um, I couldn't believe what I saw looking down the street
0: yeah. just I mean I've only seen the images after the fact and it was it was indescribable I think indescribable even for for an outsider.
6: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it was a it was like a monster coming at us it was a um, huge huge smoke and it, and I don't know I, I still to this day don't understand how it happened so quickly um and with such intensity but it, it was um, and of course Myself and all our neighbors, um, we we just knew we had to leave. There was no evacuation order. It was <laughs> it was get out yeah. of there. <laughs> yeah, that
0: animal instinct, right? Just flee, right? That was yeah. the. You yeah. know, we've spoken since that day. We've spoken to other folks who lived in the town or lived in the community in the First Nations uh, community as well about mm-hmm. the difficulties in rebuilding. And here we are, nearly two years after the fact. And I know it's been tough to rise from the ashes. Uh, you're there now as mayor. Uh, where are we at? Where are we at with with the with the progress? I I I, I gather it's starting starting to move.
6: Um, yeah, we are seeing some a shift, uh, which which is really positive. So, as mayor, I've been in since November last year. So somebody reminded me it's only been seven, or it's been seven months already. Myself and a new council, and um, you know, a total new council sh- changed. So the previous council didn't run. There was staff, uh, a huge staff turnover um, over the two years. Um, but yeah, so. What we did uh, as a new council is we brought on some staff that have really made a difference for us. Um, we have hired uh, two recovery managers, and, and we hadn't really had a recovery manager in the last two years. Um, they were hired and then left for whatever reason. And so we've got these two diamond, Dynamo uh, recovery managers that have just really started moving things forward for us. Um, you know, they got in there and they just, you know, had, they learned, they got in and um, tried to figure out what it was that needed to get done. And I think what we're hearing from them is that they're saying, we don't want to look at reasons why things aren't happening. We want to find solutions to move things forward. So they're keeping that kind of an attitude. Um, in the last, um, let's see, just the last few weeks here, um, we've li- well this last week we lifted the state of local emergency, which has been on since you know for the last two years.
0: Right, um, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. Um, are the are the evacuation orders still? I, I know for a while the evacuation orders are still in place. I was trying to figure out if those were those were linked.
6: Yeah, yeah, actually, they were. You know, I, I had no idea there was still an evacuation order on. <laughs> and so when we lifted the state of local emergency, uh, we were then told, well, now you need to uh, remove the evacuation order. And we said, what evacuation order? Because in Lytton, um, of course, in the town, that bur- the part that burned, uh, nobody could live there anyways. <laughs> But the 30 or 40 homes that are above the highway and on, on, in the village boundaries, that's where the evacuation order has been on. And people have been living there for the last two years. So it, it right. was that was interesting.
0: When, when you look at, um, at, at just what's happened in the last two years, have, have people... Are people still optimistic that they're going to be able to come back or if people started, because we see this in other communities where there's been really terrible flooding or so on, people start to sort of scatter into the wind and they don't come back. Not always. Yeah.
6: Yeah, You know, right after the fire, um, I think there was a lot of optimism and hope from people that, you know, yep, we're coming back. And then things just took so long. Um, You know, as a resident out there, um, you know, I was displaced. I was, I was gone. And, um, uh, communication was is such an issue. Is such a um, and and we just weren't hearing what was going on. Um, and so yeah, I think that that's one of the reasons that people started losing a lot of hope. Not a lot appeared to be happening in the village, and there was no communication. People didn't know what was going on.
0: What's the so, I mean, yeah, no, I, that that was became crystal clear for a while. It felt like for a while at least that it was just frozen in time that the town the, the town was the village was just frozen in time, and everyone was trying to figure out well when when does this rebuilding begin that we were so optimistic about in the early times and when's this going to happen or or am I going to have to find another place to call home?
6: You're right. a year ago, March is when it was announced that the cleanup would start. We didn't see any cleanup starting until June, so a year ago there was no cleanup. Um, so you're right. You know, um, a number of people from the village now have um, made the choice to move on with their lives in other locations. They've, you know, sold their properties, decided not to rebuild. Um, but there are—I I don't have the exact numbers—but there are people that are planning to to rebuild and move back. Um, yeah. it, it's a it's a mixed bag.
0: It's nice to have Denise O'Connor along with us on this Thursday evening. She is the mayor of Lytton, has been since November. We're talking about uh, the village trying to rebuild, the area trying to rebuild after that devastating fire, which took place two years ago tomorrow. It was two years ago today that we were talking about Lytton being the warmest place Canada has ever seen, up, up around 50 degrees it was on June the 29th, 2021. But the next day, of course, is the one that will go down in infamy, June the 30th, because of that fire. Uh, Denise, when, when you look ahead, how I mean, are you optimistic Optimistic that things are going to start moving in a way that we're going to start to see the town kind of start to rise, the village start to rise again the way one might have expected it to uh, maybe a year ago now.
6: Yes, absolutely. Um, hydro has been in, and um, I think most of the power poles are up. They've hooked up hydro to all the buildings that survived the fire. We just heard today that the uh, the final building, which is a, a, the parish hall by the church, is... Um, is up and running with hydro which means we have a place with air conditioning now to gather to meet um, we have um, we finished the um, the soil remediation is as is, is much done now um, which means that most of the archaeology is done on properties which means now we can start backfilling and we actually was announced today that we next week we'll see dump trucks coming in with the backfill to replace the soil that was taken out through the remediation so those things are are um are going to be happening or or are, are happening which you know is really is a signal for the businesses for the property owners to say you know building is rebuilding is going to happen uh,
0: when you, when you left home that day a year ago two years ago tomorrow i can't imagine you ever thought you'd be mayor overseeing the rebuilding one day and it would be two years later
6: yeah yeah i uh... I left. I was living in a hotel in Kamloops and in, in Merritt and finally went into the Caribou to live with my daughter for a while. But I grew up in Lytton. Lytton has been my home. Um, even, you know, I said I was married and lived 30 years in a house in town, but above the highway was a home, uh, my family home I grew up in. And that came open to me in November after the fire. Um, so I, I came back um, in, in November of twenty one. I had been very vocal though, in the media and such um being mayor isn't something that I've had to dream of being all my life, but you know uh community members i guess um saw something in me and convinced me to to run and uh that's, that's how I got,
0: <laughs> got that's to how be you mayor. got here. You yeah, got handed this huge yeah. task. What what has it been like for for you? I don't know how much attention you're paying to what's been going on this summer across the country, but there are an awful lot of wildfires <laughs> happening. And there are communities yeah. that find themselves, not, not like Lytton, but communities that have found themselves, you know, subdivisions outside of Halifax that have been equally, that have been, you know, destroyed. And I, I thought of Lytton and the people there and what kind of advice you would give to people in other parts of the country that are facing some of these some of these really monumental disasters.
3: Yeah, yeah,
6: yeah. Um... Uh, that's a good question. You know, um, advice around, you know, I guess would be um, there's a lot of help out there. There's a lot of people want to help um, accept it. You know, and and, uh, and the other piece is is take take um, climate change and the risk of fire, those kinds of things seriously. Um, you know, fire smart. Um, strategies, um, um, those kinds of things to, to make your community fire resilient as you rebuild and when you rebuild and after you rebuild. Um, yeah, it, it's, and, and I guess the other thing is to, I would, I would uh, advise government is to look after the people. It's the people that make the community. And so, um, that's, I mean, definitely that was our experience is we felt really left out of everything um, because of the lack of communication and lack of knowing what was happening. I think that's a, that's a very important piece.
0: Yeah, that always felt like the lesson that had to be learned here was that the the, the community, even when they're scattered, when they're scattered after an event like this, and that's what usually happens, that you mm-hmm. need to make sure that they're communicated with. Because if not, that sense of community gets lost and then everything is lost, right? That's, that's
6: Absolutely. That's exactly what happened to us.
0: Yeah.
6: You know, saying perf- that, yeah. um, thank goodness for social media, because that's something that did keep, keep us together in a certain,
0: <laughs> to a certain extent. Yeah, you found each other on social media for sure. In a perfect world, a year from now, what are we talking about?
6: Yeah, I would say in a year from now, we're going to see a lot of uh, buildings being rebuilt. Um, we're going to see, um, I would hope there's going to be at least one person have moved into their, <laughs> their new home. Um, and, and, and I think we're going to be developing some partnerships with our local First Nations and community members outside of Lytton, outside of the village, you know, whether that's around, um, how we're going to rebuild our infrastructure, you know, our water, our, um, some of our municipal buildings, you know, because we did get some substantial grants from the federal, federal government for rebuilding our, our municipal, um, buildings and so you know we really do need to look outside of just the village to do that work we there's about three thousand people living out and around our village that Lytton was their service hub it was the place they came to for the bank the grocery store the coffee shop you know um all of those kinds of things and so they are very important partners in in our rebuild and um right yeah
0: well Denise, I hope to put Lytton back on my bucket list very soon to come visit. I mean, I've mean, i been through it, but I've never been in it, and I'd love to come visit at one point. Hopefully this this is sooner than later. Thank you so much for your time tonight.
6: Yeah, thank you so much,
0: Ben. Oh, what better way to uh, enter a Canada Day, Canada Day long weekend than with Stomp and Tom in Sudbury, right? It's the 156th anniversary of Confederation coming up on Saturday, and a new survey, though, shows that most of us probably don't know enough about the history of this country. I mean, that might not come as a huge surprise, but sometimes the numbers can be a little stark, not enough to pass the citizenship test at the very least.
2: In a survey of more than 1,500
6: Canadian adults, Leger found that only 23% would pass a citizenship test based on their answers to 10 randomly selected questions. People who wish to become Canadian need to answer 20 questions about citizens' rights and responsibilities, as well as Canada's history, geography, economy, government, laws, and symbols. They need to get 75% of them right to pass, but the average score of the Canadians who were surveyed was only 49%. Laura Osmond,
0: the Canadian Press, Ottawa. 49%. 49%. Uh, it was pretty even by age. This surprised me because we dug into the numbers a little bit uh, with 18 to 34 scoring 45%, 35 to 54 scoring 46%. And uh, thankfully for the 55 plus crowd because they Brought up that score a little bit, scoring 53%. And every province across the country was pretty uniformly bad at around 50%. Atlantic Canada was down there at 44%. So we thought we'd get you, we'd get all of us a little education tonight. And to help us with that, none better than Craig Baird, who's a historian, but also the host of the Canadian History X podcast, which is great. And Craig joins us now. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, I'm sure you saw, you saw Were you surprised that so few Canadians, I mean, you love history and your Twitter feed and what, the work that you do makes it all very palatable and interesting. But were you surprised that so few Canadians seem to know, I mean, these are some tougher questions, but uh, we didn't do too well on that. We didn't do too well in general on, the, on that test.
3: I was a bit surprised. I know that, you know, the Heritage Minutes were created to kind of teach Canadians about history because we had similar numbers back in the 80s. So I'm surprised that uh, the numbers aren't that much higher considering, you know, all the history and uh, the, the availability of information out there.
0: Yeah. And you made it your mission in many ways to try to make history just a little bit more entertaining because sometimes I guess it can be a little dry and people tend to sort of forget it when they leave school. But um, that can't really be the case because 18 to 34 only scored 45% and their 55 plus um, counterparts scored 53% on the test. But tell me a bit about how you got your start just trying to figure out ways to make history something that everyone could enjoy and celebrate. Well,
3: I was always interested in history when I was a kid, but what really got me interested in Canadian history was actually the Heritage Minutes, uh, Pierre Burton, and then Canada People's History, which were just great ways to really teach our history in a really informative way. And then, so I took that and wanted to do the same, but using you know new technology of podcasting and social media to kind of make history interesting and show people that you know Canadian history isn't boring when you start delving into it.
0: You've had some real success uh, focusing on our prime ministers, for instance. You sort of rock-starred our prime ministers. You have to see these images. These are kind of uh, every prime minister in Canada is either like a hockey a hockey player or uh, an 80s rock god, which are all really good. Tell me a bit about the reaction to those and and, and how you came up with the ideas.
3: Well, the reaction to those has been it was just extremely, uh, extremely good. People have really enjoyed them. And what I wanted to do with the creating this AI art with the Prime Ministers and others was to make Canadian history kind of fun. Because with the Prime Minister, a lot of people told me how they started looking at the Prime Ministers and went, oh, I didn't know who this person was. I didn't know about this person. So they started looking it up, and teachers told me they wanted to use those images to try and teach kids about uh, the Prime Ministers. And so I want to make Canadian history fun and interesting. And that was just a perfect way to do it.
0: Yeah, and the reaction has been, has been great as well. Tell me about some of the other ones that have that have landed really well because uh, because it's it's quite varied. It's hard to tell which ones are going to be really popular, but some of them have been huge successes.
3: Yeah, so I've had the prime ministers as hobbits. I think I had once them uh, as Conan, uh, the barbarian kind of uh, era, but I've also done Muppets representing the provinces and the describing, you know, the various provinces and what's there, uh, the provincial mascots to describe what, you know, has made these. Uh, provinces, you know, rich or, or doing well with their economies. Uh, I just recently put out one that was kind of a Pixar type one for famous Canadians and I have another one coming on Canada Day. So I've tried to really kind of create a wide variety so that people could, you know, they're not getting too bored of just seeing like rock star prime ministers, but are actually yeah. seeing different things
0: and learning. It seems like you have an, an endless source of subjects, to, 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 because every day, I mean, today you talked about uh, about Sue, who passed away today, right? Sue Johansson, you know, famous Canadians. It's this idea that, that of trying to place people into the context that they deserve and what and what it means to be to be Canadian and how many great Canadians there actually are. In fact, I think you're doing a countdown on great Canadians right now.
3: I am. Yeah. And that's, you know, with my podcast, I've released about 550 episodes and I still have episodes planned into 2025. So there is an abundance of people to talk about and events and so much from Canadian history.
0: Before we get into Canada Day, so just some of your favorite your favorite moments that you've liked to, that you've really been eager to share with people because um, you know it's tough to narrow it down. I mean, people sometimes don't. I mean, it's hard to understand sometimes, but to focus down something like history into palatable pieces of information, you got a lot of a lot of material to work with, right? So deciding what you're going to talk about and when can be a challenge, and you seem to have found uh, a way to keep it really interesting.
3: Yeah, I try and think of, you know, especially with Twitter, with different threads that I can make that make it interesting for Canadians. I mean, just today I looked at the spouses of prime ministers to kind of show the people who – Aren't as you know seen as often uh, to the public and the various things that they did and and how they were often very extraordinary individuals and you know through the days I like to show what happened on a particular day in Canadian history and really get people interested especially about uh, Indigenous history and pre-colonial history when I can because specifically for me I find that very fascinating.
0: Yeah, and, and certainly something, I mean, I don't know about you, but when I was uh, taking history in, you know, grade 10 back in the late 80s, we didn't learn much. I mean, I think back to what we were taught, and it was lacking. It was lacking in a big way. I mean, I grew up in Quebec, so it was very focused on sort of Quebec, uh, but I really felt coming out of high school that I that I just didn't know enough about the, even now when I look at the at the test, and we'll share some of those questions after uh, when we come back about the questions that we <laughs> see how we do, but, you know, even looking at those questions, I realized that that my, my low Your education was lacking a bit when it came to understanding a lot of the ins and outs of of Canadian history.
3: Yeah, it was the same for me with uh, growing up in Alberta. We focused on the Northwest Resistance, the Cold War quite a bit, and a bit about uh, Sir John MacDonald. But there was pretty much no Indigenous history that we talked about. We barely talked about the Prime Minister. There was a bit about the War of 1812, but nothing about the Upper and Lower Canada Rebellions of 1837 and 1838. I didn't even know about those until I started learning Canadian history.
0: Right. It's funny to say that because it, it means that different people in different parts of the country learn different histories of the same place. I mean, absolutely. Yeah, certainly, certainly in Quebec we did. I mean, it was really called the history of Quebec and Canada in small lettering, right? That was that was what it was. So it was, it was interesting because I suppose that's the problem with history, and that's what's great about how you present it, is that it can be quite divisive. It can be quite political. Um, And the way you've presented it, it tries to avoid that and just sort of celebrate it in all its different guises and with all its wrinkles and so on. And that's probably the right way to approach it these days.
3: Without a doubt. I mean, I think it's the journalist in me uh, that tries to be, you know, just objective and just showing the facts and not kind of giving my opinion. I mean, I don't, you know, give my opinion on politics or who I vote for or anything like that. I just kind of stay middle of the road and I just try and show as much as possible. And I mean, I have people from both sides of the spectrum following me and really enjoying what I put out there.
0: Well, it's nice to have Craig Barrett, historian and host of the Canadian History X podcast, with us this half hour as we head into the Canada Day long weekend. We're talking about uh, well, history in general, our love for it, and and uh, and why perhaps we don't know enough about our own history. Although Craig, I don't know if you had a look at this at this test that Leje did, but it was tough. It was tough. Who was John Buchan? I'm like I remember his. I remember the Thirty Nine Steps, the book he wrote, but I forgot he was Governor General. <laughs> yeah, from 1935 to 1940, I believe. Yeah, I knew you would have done really well on this, right? Um, but there was, yeah, it, it was, it, it was tough. It was tough. I mean, what was this, some of the other ones? The Three Fathers of Confederation. That one's pretty straightforward, um, which you probably, probably know, right? Uh, Cartier, McDonald, and Tache. And then, uh, yeah, and then, yeah. There's quite a few. There's there's more than that too. I, I mean, it, when I look at it too, I mean, sometimes we, we we get up. I think we take a certain satisfaction in thinking we don't know enough about our past. But as we hit Canada Day, you must have some really interesting tidbits to talk about uh, about July the first.
3: Yeah, actually, it's it's really interesting. With Canada Day, is that you know, for most of Canada's existence, it was not even called Canada Day. It was. Dominion Day and that was kind of really established in about 1879 so we took about 12 years before we even made a statutory holiday for Canada Day but of course it was called Dominion Day and we kind of kept that for a while 1946 we tried to change it to Canada Day and it passed the House of Commons and then went to the Senate and then the Senate came back and said let's call it the National Holiday of Canada and the House of Commons didn't like that so that kind of killed that bill but it wasn't actually until 1982 that we actually officially changed it from Dominion Indian Day to Canada Day, so within my lifetime and your lifetime as
0: well. Yeah, that, that's uh, and I don't remember this. I mean, I, I'm trying to remember back to when, of course, growing up in Montreal, needless to say, growing up in Montreal in the 70s and the early 80s, we didn't have, there weren't big Canada Day celebrations, right? The the week before was Saint-Jean, the, the Fête Nationale in Quebec, and that was a big deal, especially back then. And uh, Canada Day wasn't much celebrated. I'm trying to remember when it really started to take off as as a big celebration, especially in Ottawa.
3: I think probably as we got into the 1990s, especially after the Quebec referendum happened, uh, you know, we wanted to have really big celebrations really show that, uh, you know, unified country. But obviously in 1967, there was a massive celebration because it was the centennial of, uh, of Canada. So there was a huge Canada celebration clear across the country.
0: Right. An expo, of course, right? Expo 67, sure. which was obviously in Montreal. That's always been a been a big a big deal. Uh, does it vary across the country as far as you know? I mean, do is it celebrated differently in different places?
3: I believe so, yeah. I mean, in the prairies, it's it's pretty much celebrated as Canada Day. And the same thing in British Columbia and Ontario. Like you said, in Quebec, it's a bit different. Uh, but in Newfoundland, they do celebrate Canada Day, kind of. But it's also an important day because that was the day of the Battle of Albert in the First World War, where the... Newfoundland troops officially entered the Battle Battle of the Somme and were pretty much Mm -hmm. decimated in the battle. So that's kind of what they celebrate, or at least honour that day, along with Canada Day. So because we're such a big country, we, we kind of celebrate it all in different ways.
0: Yeah, indeed, and, and in in terms of in terms of the the some of the other tidbits that I always found found interesting about uh, about it as well was just I mean when you, when you think about the fact of, of just how young the country is in many ways and and how for so long we used to sort of look across the border to July the fourth in the U.S. and how big a deal it was and and it was a bit more muted on this side and I'm wondering I mean that changed a bit as you mentioned during during the 90s post referendum and it's come down a bit you know we've, there's been a lot of reckoning about reconciliation and so on now I'm wondering if we haven't sort of started to try to approach a way to try to figure out how to have a proper Canada Day in this country?
3: I think so. I mean, that's the whole reason we changed from Dominion Day to Canada Day was because of the colonizer uh, implications of Dominion Day. And so when we changed to Canada Day, I think we started to kind of celebrate ourselves a bit more. And then, like you said, with uh, Truth and Reconciliation, we're trying to find our footing exactly how to celebrate Canada Day, you know, and celebrate everybody within Canada, including the Indigenous people. and you mentioned the United States. We're always very careful not to be, I guess I want to say, as loud as the United States and celebrating their country and their history and all of that. And that's one problem with our history is that we don't often celebrate it as much as the Americans do, so we know a lot less about it. And that kind of brings us back to that whole test. But I think with Canada Day, we're kind of just figuring out exactly how we're supposed to celebrate it as we move through the 21st century
0: what do you have planned i've always i don't want you to give away too too much we'll wait we'll wait till saturday and see but what do you have planned this year for uh, for canada day in terms of uh, in terms haven't... of what you're going to share yeah <laughs> quite a bit it's a it's a pretty big day for me um yeah. i have Uh, quite a bit of
3: threads that I'm going to be putting up. Uh, I'm going to be putting up a new AI thread of Prime Ministers. And then i am going to be talking about, you know, Indigenous leaders in 1867, kind of key events that led us to Confederation, uh, some pre-colonial Indigenous history. I'll be talking about the Alberta, the the Battle of Albert that happened with Newfoundland. And then I'll I'll also want to put up a lot of pictures of Canada days, you know, gone by uh, through our history. So I have quite a bit that I've got to put up. It's going to be a very busy day at the computer.
0: No doubt. What have you found in terms of the history of it? Where did you find those and what do they look like?
3: Um, In terms of the history of
0: Canada Day? Yeah, exactly.
3: Um, Yeah, there's a lot of really great pictures from our history, and especially, like I said, with uh, July 1st, 1967, because that was just such a wonderful year where Canada just kind of lost its mind and really celebrated itself in a way it never had before. But there's many... Pictures in the archives of people celebrating throughout our history, going all the way back to pretty much Confederation. And we always celebrate in different ways. We were celebrating being part of the British Empire at one point, and then we were celebrating just being Canada, and now we're kind of celebrating our history but also recognizing parts of our history that aren't so great. Uh, But there's a lot of things uh, to do with Canada Day that I think are really great, and kind of like I said, with just the fact it took until 1982 for us to actually Officially call it Canada, Day, and even that was a very big deal and caused a lot of controversy.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I don't remember that as much. Again, growing up in Quebec, you, you're kind of sheltered from it in some ways, and, and it's been it's been enlightening leaving Quebec as you're older and, and sort of being exposed to a lot more stuff. Um, and, we had some trivia questions for you, but I'm trying to make sure they're all correct because you're going to correct me if they're not wrong. One of the cool ones was uh, how, how many how much of the world's maple syrup supply comes from this country? Do you, do you have a, a rough idea?
3: <laughs> I think it's 80%. Yeah,
0: no, you're bang on. What year was the toonie introduced?
3: Uh, 1995
0: or six. Jeez, Craig, you're, you're going to get these all right. I can feel it already. I can feel it already. Uh, this one I, I wanted to make sure. How many points does a maple leaf have on the Canadian flag? Uh, I think it's twelve or no, 10 or twelve yeah i the, the answer that I got was eleven, but I, haven't, I have to go back and count them, so I want to make sure those were right. and this is another one that always confuses me too, which is how many time zones does Canada have? Uh, I think five yeah, I, I got six as the answer too, so I'll have to well, go check these again. <laughs> you know i was I, I I had a lot to prep to do. I don't want to get you wrong on these how about, how about and, and this is an easy one. How many Olympics have we hosted? Three. Right, I remember the first ones in Montreal. I was just a kid. We didn't win anything. That was, (laughs) and we we had that stadium. I grew up in the shadow of that stadium for for, most of my childhood, (laughs) watching baseball games in that cavernous place. Um, What are I mean, when you look at what really piques people's interest about stuff, I guess trivia is a great one, and just making it more palatable as well. When you when you go out there and try to engage people in in our history.
3: Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Having that trivia and, you know, choosing kind of topics that are interesting and not just being dry with it. And that's what I liked about Pierre Burry he always made his books very interesting and it really kind of made history come alive. And so with the threads that I put up or the podcast episodes I release, I want to make it accessible and make it interesting and make it so that you feel like you're there and learning without me just kind of droning on about a particular topic where you feel like you're being lectured.
0: Right. Yeah. Th- one of the questions on that test, actually, that I got wrong, much to my chagrin, was who is Marjorie Turner Bailey, speaking of the 1976 Summer Olympics?
3: Yeah, she was an Olympian and I think a descendant
0: of uh, black loyalists. Right, from Nova Scotia, right? She, kept, she competed in the 100 meters and the 200 meters. It's it's What's interesting when they do these surveys and so on is if you go back and look at the questions, they're really hard, but you'll never forget what you learned. <laughs> that's, the, no, that's, that's the good part true. of it. Yeah, and The 39 Steps is a great movie. You ever get a chance to uh, to have a look. Craig Baird, uh, thank you so much for for joining me. And uh, yeah, we'll be looking up for your stuff on Canada, Canada Day. You can follow Craig on Twitter. I highly recommend it. And of course, there's the podcast, Canadian History X. Thanks for
6: having me. <laughs>
0: right indiana jones and the dial of destiny i mean you get the impression it's probably a little more impressive you get to watch it right the audio is decent but you can picture it you can picture it right you can picture indiana jones uh, most of us can i'm a i'm a big Indiana Jones fan, or at least it was one of those movies that made a big impression on me when I was young, when Raiders of the Lost Ark came out. Um, So Indiana Jones fans will have something to celebrate this long weekend, the fifth latest and presumably the last installment of the series hits theaters across the country tomorrow. It's called Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. It comes 15 years. After the release of the last one, uh, uh, the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull in 2008, and 34 years after the one that everyone thought was going to be the last one, it was called The Last Crusade. And that was all the way back in 1989. As I mentioned, I remember going to Toronto to see the first one because it the way classifications worked back then, it was 14 and over in Montreal and I wasn't 14, so I couldn't go. So I had to go to Toronto where it was, I think, Parental Guidance or one of those where you could go with an adult. Um, And I remember going there specifically to see Raiders of the Lost Ark and being absolutely blown away by it. Uh, Temple of Doom, eh, not so much, not bad. Last Crusade was really good. And then the crystal coal, which was kind of terrible, you know, it was one of those things where you're kind of apprehensive. You're thinking, well, maybe if they do a good job of it, it'll be good. And it was uh, it was I mean, I've watched it again over the years and it's okay. Not great. So ever since I heard about the new one, here we are, you know, fifteen years later, and they're putting in another one. Harrison Ford is eighty. Um, but they made a new one. And I saw the cons- the trailers and I had some concerns. I mean, I'll go see it no matter what, right? Because you want to see it on a big screen. Uh, but I kind of thought, oh, maybe I'll be let down by this one as well. So we thought we'd get a sneak peek by some from someone who's actually seen it already without giving away too much of the plot. I hope it doesn't. <laughs> anyway, Barry Hertz is the film editor at the Globe and Mail, and he joins me now. Barry, thank you. Thanks for having me. I mean, there's so much anticipation about uh, about this movie, as always. It's such a famous franchise, and here we are. I think 15 years after the last one. Uh, how much anticipation were you? I mean, you must be looking forward to seeing it. I mean, I'm
2: looking forward. I was looking forward to seeing it um, as much as I think any person who's encountered the four Indiana Jones before. Um, I guess I just wasn't, uh, you know, waiting with bated breath because. Uh, edition uh, kingdom of the crystal skull didn't exactly leave one wanting more and it also provided a pretty good enough close to the story that uh, we felt you know indiana jones has found his footing and we can leave the series as be but you know if they're gonna do it they might as well do it and we might as well try to get excited about it
0: yeah, I mean, I, I sort of thought, you uh, know, The Last Crusade in 89 left it at a, a nice spot. How do how do they manage? What, what I guess what I was curious about is how do they manage to retell the story after they seem to have wrapped up the story so many times?
2: Well, in this edition, they do a clever little thing at the beginning, which is when they go back in time. Right. Um, so there's a, about a 20-minute opening prologue in which we find indy back in the midst of the second world war fighting his favorite uh, foes the nazis um and this is accomplished by using some pretty tremendously impressive uh de-aging technology now we've seen this kind of stuff used before uh in stuff like martin scorsese's the irishman uh, a bunch of the marvel movies but this what they do here is pretty next level um, you actually Not for a second, really, did I doubt that I was watching a 40-something-year-old Harrison Ford uh, fighting guys and swinging from trains and outrunning guns. It's really a remarkable effect. And the fact that they commit so much time to it um, really shows the money is all up there on the screen.
0: Which is interesting because one of the complaints about uh, the last one, Crystal Skull, was that the CGI was pretty, pretty, was pretty not good. If I could put it, if I could put it that way. Hmm.
2: Yeah. I mean, the CGI has definitely stepped up several uh, generations here, um, at least in the opening Um, you're kind of watching it just really taken away and and put into kind of a, a truly kind of magical um, experience. Uh, But You know, it only lasts for about 20 minutes or so. And then we're thrown into what is uh, Indy's present day 1969, where the actual 80 year old Harrison Ford now must contend with bad guys all over again. But, you know, in his current uh, form, which is still a very good fighting form for anybody uh, of that age or even younger. Um, But it does take, you know, a little zest um, out of the uh, proceedings.
0: Yeah, and I gather it's 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 he sort of winds up in New York City, which is not really where one expects Indiana Jones to spend his golden years, needless to say.
2: No, no. I mean, he's in New York, he's living in a pretty kind of rundown apartment, um, teaching a bunch of students who couldn't care less. Um, you know, it's director James Mangold and the various screenwriters trying to paint a kind of man out of time situation. We're watching, you know, uh, Harrison Ford in this kind of space age era. Everybody's looking up at the stars and here's a guy who's still interested in digging through the dirt. Uh, but the tension between those two kind of atmospheres is not really fully developed, I would say. And in the midst of trying to get Indiana back into action and back on the road and back on a plane where we can see, you know, the, the little diagram of the plane crisscrossing the map just right. so and all those kind kind of pulpy um, adventures that we were used to with the Spielberg and Lucas productions, everything is just kind of sanded down a bit. It's just not as fun. It feels like more of a production and more of a labored process than it should be an effortless adventure.
0: It's quite the cast. I mean, Phoebe Waller-Cates, if anyone's seen Fleabag, is excellent. I, I couldn't quite picture her in a, in, in, a, in an indie movie, but there she is, and she's always really engaging. And then Mads Mikkelsen, who is great as Le Chiffre in uh, Casino Royale and, and in many other things. So it's a pretty pretty good cast in there.
2: It's a, it's a good cast on the surface. Uh, you also have, like, Antonio Banderas, who pops up right. and is completely wasted, I will uh, say without spoiling much. Um, but... And I can see why they added Phoebe Waller-Bridge to... to the, Waller-Bridge, the proceedings. right, um, No, no, it's fine. Uh, we're not related. Um, I can see why they added her, because Fleabag is, is really funny, it's really Cerbic, it's really witty, and she has a very good presence on screen. And they kind of try to have her do this kind of uh, rat-a-tat banter with Indy back and forth, and try to have what he originally had with um, you know Raiders co-star Karen Allen. Right. Um, but... They don't either. They don't give her enough to do, or she's just was not energized by the prospect of having to do this. And the result is pretty flat, I have to say. Um, Mads Mikkelsen is icy as ever as the villain, and you know he does a good uh, Nazi. But otherwise, there's just not enough tension there um the the chemistry levels are off between everybody everybody seems to be acting in just a different kind of film uh harrison ford is as charming as he could possibly be with with the material he's given but nothing gels there's a there's a just a these moments of dead air that hang in between everything that really kind of take you out of the adventure of it all
0: the obvious question is Harrison Ford, right? Here he is, 80 years old. He's come back as this swash, you know, to play this swashbuckling character, uh, which he owns, really. You can't imagine anyone else doing it as well as he did, especially in the earlier films. Uh, does does he manage to, does he make, does he sort of, is there enough suspension of disbelief here that you could watch an 80-year-old Harrison Ford still be uh, an 80-year-old Indiana Jones? I think so.
2: I think so. I mean, we've, you know, this is Ford being Ford, like he refuses to give up and good on him. Like he just, he's an actor who really wants to keep busy and, you know, uh producers are very much willing to give him gobs of money to reprise his most famous roles. You know, he was Han Solo not more than a few years back. Um Now he's Indiana Jones and now he's going to be, you know, in a new Marvel movie um in a few years. So, you know, good on him for getting, back out there he clearly enjoys it he clearly enjoys the work he clearly enjoys showing people that he's kept himself you know able to do these kinds of roles um and he's the best part of the movie with without a without a doubt
0: yeah, he, he often was. I, I guess the, the knock against some of the later ones. I mean, The Last Crusade to me was the last one that had a really great, coherent plot. And, and it matters, right? I mean, people forget that the reason that Raiders of the Lost Ark was so great, maybe Temple of Doom wasn't quite as great, was basically the plot, the plot and, and the writing. And it feels like that's sort of what went away in, in, in the last one in 2008. And here we are 15 years later, and you're just hoping against hope that they brought in people who could write a good movie for them, right? And, and tell a good tale.
2: Yeah, uh, and unfortunately, you know, whenever the number of credited screenwriters kind of inches past 2 or 3, you know you're kind of in for um trouble and I believe four people are here and I'm sure Spielberg and Lucas who are producing credits had input as well um, of course the director is always kind of shaping things as they go as well and, and Mangold is known um, for being an involved uh, filmmaker um, which is a great thing but here is just a case of you know not to use the cliche of too many cooks in the kitchen but you know too many archaeologists in the dig um, there's just uh, a lot of directions going on and, and a lot of themes that get get touched but not quite explained or examined and the set pieces that are constructed around the film that the film is constructed around um just lack with the exception of that really great opening you know a thrill a jolt and that kind of again like pulpy adventure that the film franchise was known for
0: it, it kind of always begs the question when they bring these franchises back, though, that you know, as as adventure films or, or you know superhero films have become so much more, they've changed so much in the past while, you wonder whether there's still a place for some of these old franchises, even though whole generations of kids like myself, you know, I remember going to see Raiders in Toronto for the first time because I couldn't see it in Montreal, it was 14 and over, going to Toronto specifically to see Raiders of the Lost Ark because it was parental guidance, you could go with your parents, hmm. Um and just being blown away by it. And I think that nostalgia for the franchise exists today. Uh, but you wonder whether these franchises still have a place in the modern movie lexicon?
2: Yeah, um I think they do. Um, I think, you know, if you 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 can go online on, on Disney Plus and you can stream the rest of the franchise to your heart's content. Uh, you know, they've given a big promotional space there now to obviously juice interest in this movie. Um, and the characters are timeless um you know you don't need to have grown up with them to be reintroduced and appreciate them and of course you know have you have people like ourselves who did watch them as young kids and are now you know giving them to our kids exposing them to our children so that we can kind of carry on that cultural connection and, and uh, further amplify that nostalgia so you know th- there's no secret or mystery as to why these kinds of films keep getting made, um, they're familiar, and they're familiar successes. Um, so they're, they're, you know, there's an idea that there's more money to be made from them. Um, but you know, unless really Ford gives himself over to the artificial intelligence machine to construct a totally um, DH persona that can be used as an avatar for five more movies, which could very well happen, which could
0: very well happen. Uh, Yeah. If they could, if they can do it, they will do it.
2: (laughs) If they can do it, they will do it. Who knows what the language is in his contracts. Um, But unless that happens, if that happens, should that happen? No, but it might um and we'll see it will all depend on the performance of this film um it's tracking pretty decently at the box office right now but it also costs a tremendous amount of money Um, we're talking about upward of 300 million dollars which is an order of magnitude in terms of the uh first four films so you have to be a world conquering triumph to really make this a profitable venture
0: yeah no is there any sense that this may be one of those films that people first see it and are sort of a little disappointed by it and then a second wave comes in and sees and thinks oh it's not that bad i mean there's that's the thing about indiana jones movies even the crystal skull which i i really didn't like very much i watched it again not that long ago and thought it's actually better than, than a lot of other stuff i've been watching over the last few years
2: yeah i mean time can be time can be kind to a lot of uh to a lot of uh tragedies let's say um but there is i i feel like there's no real escape from that cycle of assessment and reassessment you're always because of the proliferation of uh, of uh discussion and, and the intensity of discussion of film online uh, in certain mm-hmm. online circles you're always going to have something that's appraised and then reappraised and um you're gonna have contrarian takes on it and then you're gonna have uh you know contrarian contrarian takes on it so um nothing is really ever written in stone what is kind of there is its initial box office reception and that kind of cements a film's legacy one way or the other certainly if there are going to be more films like that made so no sequel has ever been made because 10 years later somebody wrote a really great essay saying actually
0: you know what this was pretty
2: great right
0: <laughs> well I, i'm sure it's going to do very well uh, barry thank you so much thank you thanks for having me